every single one of us is flawed. It's the nature of being a human being. And sometimes leaders will get things wrong. I mean, they simply get it wrong. I mean, I've got things wrong. Verena, I cannot believe you haven't got things wrong. I've been lucky enough. You know, I've got things wrong in my career. And I've been lucky enough that I've been working for somebody or whatever has said, okay, you got that wrong, but that's not the end of everything. You know, there's a forgiveness there. And I think if you want to create a high trust organization, then as well as judging leaders, we've got to be also able to forgive them. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. This leads to greater gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, white middle-class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. And in fact, my hope is that many of you listening right now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible where you make the decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from amazing like-minded peers, join our events or find out about our world-class career development programs for parents, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. We will open applications soon for our cross-sector fellowship program again. And until then, keep an eye on our newsletter for our free events where our fellows share their learning. Today's podcast guest is Veronica Hope Haley, who is an expert in generating trust. And that's such an important topic, especially when you think about having a line manager that trusts you to just get the job done regardless of what your life circumstances are or if you're working flexibly or not or just having a really trusting atmosphere in organizations. It just makes and breaks everything. And also, how can you, as an employee, make sure that people trust you so that you are more effective in your job and also you enjoy the job more? Plus, Veronica has five children and shares with us how she managed to do all of that. Enjoy the conversation. So a very warm welcome, Veronica, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Let's start with you introducing yourself, who you are, who's in your family and what you do for work. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm Veronica Hope-Haley. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Bath. I was uh, Dean and University Vice President for seven years, sitting on the university executive there. And I've had over 30 years of being an academic, but also a freelance consultant because people within university business schools are allowed to pursue a freelance consulting career. So I've, I've had this wonderful hybrid career. I'm currently doing much more of the freelance consulting and freelance researching, which I'll talk about later because I've been doing research, Verena, through COVID on leadership and trustworthy leadership. Um, I've got, extraordinarily, I've got five daughters. I am the original Mrs. Bennett of Pride and Prejudice. And so I've got five daughters and there's an age range of 14 years between the eldest one and when the youngest one was born. And I've got five grandchildren now, which makes me sound really ancient. But yeah, there we are. 
that's me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm asking this question of every guest. What did you assume about how to combine a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore? Oh, gosh, what a great question. Okay, well, if in the interest of honesty and transparency here, Verena, I can remember once when I was young, and I'm the generation that came along and challenged whether or not a woman should stay at home once they'd had children. But when I was a student, I guess, and in my early years of work, I kind of assumed it was a choice, that women would have a choice. And I found myself in a situation I didn't expect to be in, but actually millions of women are in, which is it wasn't a choice for me. We needed dual incomes. And I don't want to go into why that was, but it will be a situation that millions of women are facing at this very moment, that it it wasn't, in the end, a choice for me. And therefore, I spent a great deal of time thinking about if I was going to have to bring in an income, how could I bring in an income that would enable me to also fulfil my caring responsibilities? So that's the thing that perhaps coming from my rather middle-class cloistered childhood where my mother didn't work, even though she'd been a professional woman and she didn't marry till she was 28 and she was an extremely educated professional woman, she chose not to work. So I had always assumed it was about choice. And in my case, it became actually I just had to go out and bring some more money in for the family. Mm. And especially with the childcare costs nowadays, that's yeah. a choice that many, many people will be facing. And you have to make really hard, hard decisions either way. You have mentioned you have five children, and that's more than the average, to say, <laughs> to say the least. From a personal perspective, I'm really intrigued. Were you worried at any point that having a bigger number of children would impact more on your career progression? And if yes, has that, has that manifested in any shape or form? Okay, so, uh, you know, <laughs> this podcast is going out to a lot of people, but the five children are from two marriages, Verena, and so I never intended to have five. But suffice to say, my second husband was incredibly keen to have children, and actually I found myself pregnant unexpectedly in that second marriage, and he really wanted a child. And so I had another two children for him. That's why I certainly did not. Under, I mean, if any of my old friends are listening to this, they'll just be roaring with laughter at this point. I never intended to have a large family. Having said that, the large family is just the best thing ever. And in some ways, and I'll go on and talk about this if you want, in some ways, actually having a larger family, strangely, made it easier to do the sort of work that I was doing. And I'm happy to explain that later, but you might think that's a really curious thing to say. But in the end, they became a bit of a clan. We call them the sisterhood. Some people call them a coven. They're a very, very tight-knit group of five sisters. And that meant that there was a lot of love and relationship between the five of them, as well as between the parents. And in some ways, the love and the care was created by all seven of us, not by 
just parents and children. They were very, very, they became a, a, a real gang together. And, you know, that's something that's often not understood by families. And I have no idea whether it would work if you had five boys or boys and girls. I've no idea. All I can talk from my experience is that they became a very, very close unit. We're all very, very close still, probably excessively so in some ways. But there was therefore an awful lot of love and caring going on. If you've got seven people in a family caring for each other, I mean, you've just got more caring relationships than you have if you've got two parents and one child or, you know, two parents and two children. It's a, it's a curious thing, not something I intended, but it was just an unintended consequence of having a large family. Mm. That's really beautiful. And to a lesser extent, it resonates. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And I can see that there is this additional beautiful dynamic. I mean, I'm saying beautiful. It's a lot of the time beautiful, but also there's, of course, a lot of fighting going on. But they really do have these bonds and they help each other. They really love each other. And that's very, very, very special. And I can't wait to see what it's like in 20, 30 years time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they are. We spend quite a lot of time together. And yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic. And 99% of the time, it works incredibly well, I have to say. No idea why. No idea why. But anyway. And you've become a professor, which is tough for anybody. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's mm. not easy. It's extremely competitive. Mm. What did you do in terms of childcare arrangement or practicalities to help you still progress your career with, with that much stuff going on in your house? Well, I'll talk a little bit about actually why, I mean, I was a professor at quite an early age. If you take into consideration that I had five full years off from maternity leave, I was made professor 20 years ago. So actually, it was quite a rapid progression. And I'll come on to the childcare thing in a moment. But one of the things I worked out when I realized I would have to go out to work and I would have to bring in additional income. One of the things I worked out about the academic career is this, is that and people will be surprised by this. If they're academics listening to this, you won't. This isn't news to them. But for the rest of the world, it's probably a bit of a shock. Academics are in the top universities incredibly monitored by outcomes. So what matters are usually two things and then there's a third sometimes added in but the two main things that matter as an academic are your teaching scores are you delighting these students with your lecturing and the other thing is the level and quality and volume of your publications so what it struck me Verena was that this was very what you will call outcome based <laughs> and actually what I realized was that I could write at any time of day and night. Okay. I could write at the weekends. I could write at three o'clock in the morning if necessary. I could write at five o'clock in the morning by getting up early. And that actually this work enabled me to deliver quality and excellence, but I could decide when to do the input on the writing. Now, the teaching, no, absolutely non-negotiable. You, you have to turn up and you have to teach. But there are very, very few academics that are teaching from nine till six. So what I also realised was that actually 
if, you know, one had very, very designated times when one was going to teach, then you you would know that even if the you know children had chicken pox, you would have to be in that lecture theatre. But then there was an awful lot of freedom around that. And so that was quite an important choice. And I worked out that, you know, this was going to be deliverable. I think one of the key things that we got right, and particularly with my second husband, who's a strange bod and travelled internationally for his work. He works in international aid and development. And he would be travelling for usually three or four months of the year. Not all in one block, but he would, you know, if you're going off to the South Pacific to do economic development work or whatever, or or Sierra Leone, you, you go for blocks of time. And actually, what he never faltered on was the need for care, for additional care. And we had an awful lot of help in the house. We didn't have a great deal of money, but we had an awful lot of help. We didn't spend money. I I don't wish to sound like some sort of monastic order or something. We simply didn't spend money on, we never, we were talking about it the other day. We simply didn't go out for meals. I mean, that was, I mean, we went out for a meal once a year. It was really quite extraordinary. I mean, we very, very seldom, if you ask my daughters now, we very seldom ate out as a family. And, but we put an awful lot of money into childcare. And again, my view was that I knew that if I could keep my career going and I could be happy as a family, then it's a bit like delayed gratification. The rewards would come later. The rewards would come later on. And both the home rewards and the family rewards would accrue. And they have, and they have. But we we literally piled money into the best possible childcare and domestic help that we could get. And sometimes when I look at young parents these days, sometimes I just, you know, I just think, just get some help, get some help. In. Now, it's much more difficult. Childcare costs are astronomic now. But I just don't think you can do this. You can't be out of the home and not have somebody substituting for care now a lot of you know nowadays a lot of people are using grandparents you know there's an awful lot of support given by grandparents which is absolutely wonderful but you just can't do everything you just can't do everything and you need to be able to delegate some of this stuff to other people and John was just great like that my second husband was just wonderful because he'd go well, we don't seem to be getting through the ironing, do we, Fran? Right. Well, do, do you think we need somebody, to, you know, to do the ironing? And we we did live in a sort of small market town, not in a, you know, not in London. And there were always people that would just want the occasional hours here to come and help. And um, we paid them well. Uh, people stayed, and we saw them as part of the family, which I think is also really important. Mm. That's so interesting to hear. And I love the hindsight. You're obviously 20 years on and it sounds like you're not missing those meals out, but you would have it made a difference to your levels of exhaustion and joy by the sound of it. Yeah. I mean, 
we basically, I don't believe it's, you know, if you have the choice, if you have the privilege of choice, you cannot bring children into the world and then be totally stressed around them. And at the same time, you know, spend an awful lot of money on on stuff that isn't really benefiting a family that much. So I think, yeah, I'm not going to say I wasn't stressed. Of course, it was stressful having a large family. But I just think you have to, at a certain point, make some choices that enable you to say these children are being really well cared for or the house, you know, or other people are looking after the house so that when I am here, I can give them my full love and attention. Mm, Absolutely. And as you hinted, it's a privilege to be able to do that and not everybody will. But I think just a mindset of, and in my case, sometimes it's getting help even from the TV, not all the time, but, you know, just actually just for the things that don't matter, essentially try to get some help, try to get some relief in whatever way that yeah. works and don't feel you have to do it all to be the super person. No. You know, there's a great quote from Ruth Ben Ginsburg, you know, the uh, American judge. And it goes something like, who has it all, all the time, you know? And she talks about her career, which, of course, is a, a million times more illustrious than mine. But, you know, she talks about that you have periods of time when, and she did have this as well, where, you know, you you take your foot off the pedal of your career and you put the foot down on the pedal of your family. And I've never been afraid to do that. I've always at points, and my husband is very good at guiding me through this, at points I have been offered senior posts and I've said no. And I've said no because, you know, John will go, well, is this the right time? Is this the right time? You know, we're pretty busy with the family at the moment. You know, those posts are always going to be there, Fran. They're always going to be there for you. You know, got a lot to offer. So they're still going to be there in three years' time. Just at the moment, this family needs some stuff. And, you know, he's always been a good counsel in that respect. And, you know, that's another thing I've learned. We're, I mean, your generation, Verena, is going to be working forever. I mean, we got, there's a lot of runway in front of young parents or, or carers at the moment. There's a lot of runway. There's a long working life ahead of you. You don't have to cram it all into your, you don't have to take every promotion that's offered you in your thirties or your forties. You can stage this and you can think, okay, Right now, I'm concentrating on my family or my marriage or my partnership or whatever it is you're in. And then there are another times when you go, right, okay, yeah, that's that's really exciting. I'll go back in and put the foot down on work. But it, the idea that you have to have your foot down on everything the whole time, well, that's just a recipe from, from my perspective of burnout. You know, so this idea of sequencing your life, sequencing and and moving between these two worlds, I think is one of the things to think about. Very thought-provoking. And you have put your foot down at work. And especially also recently, you've become a real expert, or not recently, I should say, but you have become a real expert in the area of trust. Do you remember when you first started working on this, what caught your interest? Why trust? 
Oh, okay. So well, originally I was an organisational change expert and there's a very simple story behind this, Verena, that I had a PhD student who was looking at trust and change. So we were working, there were a team of us I was directing at the time, a uh, research team, and we were working on a, a long uh, sort of five-year project looking at organisational change in a variety of public and private sector organisations. And because this PhD student was looking at trust, we put some questions in around trust into the surveys. And so we were getting data on trust and change. And then what happened was that after the financial crisis, because I'd written on trust and change, I got commissioned or I won a contract from the CIPD, the Trust Institute of Personal and Development, to look at trustworthiness after the financial crisis, particularly and very topical at the moment, as we went into the time of government austerity, you know, the, the fallout from the financial crisis, both in the public and the private sector. And then that just set me off. That report was received really well. I did another two after the financial crisis on leadership and trust and how you cultivate or grow trustworthy leaders or how people experienced working for trustworthy leaders, what was different about them. And then I did a report on trust in the NHS. And then since then, I've done a huge amount during COVID. I've published four reports so far on trust and trustworthiness through the pandemic and there's a another one coming out in November so yeah and it's been really fascinating absolutely fascinating it's a really fundamental aspect of society that I think people underestimate or have done again John my husband who seems to be the sort of third person in this podcast when I first started writing about trust and writing these practitioner reports you know, one of the, his observations was because he works in international aid and because he's been to some of the most difficult places in the world where, you know, there's war, there's conflict, there's refugee crises, there's extreme poverty. What he will say is that, that people in the UK and Western Europe don't really understand how fundamental it is that we trust each other, that we are able to trust and that, you know, if a society or an organisation stops trusting each other, the people within society or the organisation stop trusting each other, the level of dysfunctionality is difficult for people in the UK to comprehend. So it's such a precious gift if we can trust each other. I recently found out that according to Inside Radio, only one in five of the top charting podcasts are hosted by women. And that's despite 50% of listeners being female. I had no idea it was such an old boys club. So if you are finding that this podcast benefited you in some way, and if you're passionate about gender equality in all forms, then please take a moment to support a female hosted podcast by sharing this episode with a friend, for example, on Signal or WhatsApp, subscribing and giving it a five-star rating. Thank you so much for your support. Back to our conversation. 
I'm sure listeners would agree just hearing you talk about it, but the devil is always in the implementation. Mm. How do you create organizations where trust is at the forefront? Okay. So where to start, really? (laughs) I think one of the things that people need to understand if you want to create a trustworthy organization is there's what we would call a mutuality of obligations. Well, that sounds a very posh phrase, but it basically means that everyone has a responsibility to create trust. So there's an all, been an awful lot of emphasis on leaders and leadership, and I can talk at length about that, Verena. But one of the key things is that it's a relationship between two parties, and each party, I think, has duties and responsibilities to create a trustworthy organisation. So let me give you some examples. So obviously, if you're in a position of power and authority as a leader, you have, I believe, an obligation to be as trustworthy as you possibly can be in any situation, as you possibly can be. world is not perfect. Leaders are faced with dilemmas and trade-offs. But it is an obligation, I believe, that if you have privilege and power, then you have a responsibility to also be trustworthy. But followers also have a responsibility to trust others and to be trustworthy. So, you know, you get a, a great deal of things about empowerment, people wanting more empowerment, people wanting more autonomy in their work, etc., etc. Well, that's great. There is an obligation. You have to be trustworthy. You have to therefore be somebody who can be trusted to be completely empowered and work from home without supervision etc etc i think leaders similarly another obligation of leaders if you want to create a, a, a trustworthy organization is not just to be trustworthy themselves but to be able to trust downwards you know lots of leaders find find that quite hard to trust downwards to trust people to empower them and equally and taking it in turns between sort of followers and leaders here if you are a follower you not only have an obligation to be trustworthy yourself but you have an obligation i think what is your obligation to forgive every single one of us is flawed it's the nature of being a human being and sometimes leaders will get things wrong. I mean, they simply get it wrong. I mean, I've got things wrong. Verena, I cannot believe you haven't got things wrong. I've been lucky enough, you know, I've got things wrong in my career and I've been lucky enough that I've been working for somebody or whatever who's said, okay, you got that wrong, but that's not the end of everything. You know, there's a forgiveness there. And I think if you want to create a high-trust organisation, then as well as judging leaders, we've got to be also able to forgive them. Now, there are degrees of forgiveness, and all the research will show, Verena, that it is much easier to forgive and move on when somebody makes a mistake, which basically suggests that 
they've made a bad decision, that they made a, a, a wrong judgment call on something factual or realistic or whatever, something that brings into doubt some of their ability or, or competence. Now, the interesting thing is that people, the research shows that people are much more willing to forgive that. You can just go, you know what, I got that wrong. What they are much less able to forgive, Verena, are situations where the trust is lost because actually what's happened is a result of an extremely dodgy character where the decision that's been taken is in some ways immoral, actually is a breach of integrity. Now, that nature of that kind of mistake, all the research that's done internationally shows that actually people are much less able to forgive. So an example of that would be the Met Police and the Sarah Cousins case. You know, that's not about an ability to police, but it is about a question mark over the character and integrity of the police in that situation. And, and that's why, quite rightly, people are not simply moving over that event. They're going, no, 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 that is unforgivable. But nevertheless, you know, if somebody makes a mistake, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, can I forgive this person? Because if you don't, if you if you judge everybody and you can never forgive anyone, I mean, it's a bit like being a parent. If you can't ever, if your child makes a mistake and you can't ever forgive them, well, you know, you're going to end up with a pretty blooming full family life. And the same will happen in workplaces. So, you know, thinking, yeah, people have obligations to be absolutely as trustworthy as they possibly can. But we do all make mistakes. Very true. And I can think of so many completely unintentional mistakes people have made when they're supporting, especially when there's, you know, highly charged emotional situation. Someone is going on maternity leave and the line manager says the completely wrong thing, very unintentional. And then it is that question, was that line manager making that comment because of a bad value and a lack of integrity or they just make the wrong judgment and then they have the information. So gender equality, I think trust is really important. So organizations are more gender equal because then you're going to allow hybrid working. You're going to welcome flexible working. If someone is hearing this and they're all for high trust organizations, they're all for hybrid working and they agree with everything you said, but in their department, the line managers find it hard to trust their followers, as you call it. What advice would you give that director? Okay, so let's go back on to some of the academic research here. Not, I don't want to overwhelm this, but there are some really simple, useful pointers from academic research. So we know that somebody will decide to trust another leader or an organisation on the basis of four criteria, okay? The first one is, are you able and competent to do your job? Ability. Can you deliver on that job, on, you know, your job or the purpose of the organization? So ability is number one. Number two, and this is quite an important one in hybrid working, and I'll come back to this in a moment, is benevolence. And benevolence is defined, Verena, by your orientation towards others. 
so are you entirely self-interested or are you bothered about others? As a third one we've already mentioned is integrity. So people judge somebody by their character, their integrity, their values. And basically, is the character or the values exhibited by either the organization or the individual things that people admire, you know? And fourthly is predictability. So can people see a consistency in people's behavior? Because there's a great Dutch proverb, Verena, and this Dutch proverb is trust comes on foot but leaves on horseback. So people decide to trust, not immediately, but they decide to trust over time. And that's where that predictability and consistency comes in. So I'm going to make a judgment on whether you're able, whether you're benevolent, whether you have integrity, and I'm going to make that judgment based over a period of time. So you know, let's then think about that in the context of hybrid working. So in some ways, the ability and competence, if you can develop or deliver rather the tasks that you need to deliver equally easily at home, as you can sitting in an office, then what's the problem? And if you can deliver those tasks, those outcomes that are required of you as easily at home, and you do that over a consistent basis so that whoever is working with you, not just the boss, but your colleagues as well, it's not, this is not just about hierarchy. It's about can your colleagues trust you to deliver when you're not in front of them and, and with them? If you can do that over a predictable, consistent fashion, then probably you can be trusted. But of course, that's not the only component of a trustworthy team or a trustworthy organisation. There are these other two things, which is about benevolence and integrity. So if we turn to those, I think I've interviewed 127 CEOs, chief finance officers, human resource directors, chief marketing officers, anybody who's at the top of the organisation. I've done 127 individual interviews of them during the pandemic about how they are maintaining trust and trustworthiness. And I've also spoken to about another 100 people, human resource directors in roundtables. So there's a fair amount of people from many of the major employers of this country. Now, this benevolence piece is therefore a really interesting one to think about, Farina, because benevolence in, in effect is almost a relational dimension. It's the extent to which you demonstrate that you're bothered about your colleagues and you're bothered about the organisation and you're bothered about the community that very often represents that organisation. And I think there are some jobs or some industries or some sectors where you can demonstrate that community and that concern for others perfectly well virtually. But there are others where a presence in the office or in the workplace, however you define it, is probably necessary because there are large numbers of people in that organisation or that workplace 
who do not have the choice to work at home. What the conversation with you is showing me is that actually all these things, the view of competence, being in someone with integrity and being perceived as someone in, with integrity, that's no, not going to happen necessarily automatically. And I think especially when you're working from home, I do believe there's an additional piece of work to be done to communicate. So to just spell it out and say, I want to perform really well. I'm going to show that I perform really well by doing A, B, C. And I really value the trust you've put in me. I'm going to return that by doing it. So, so of course, saying things is not all, you know, you have to deliver on that integrity. But I think there's something really big about being vocal about what you're doing and why you're doing it and, and that the person that you are. Yeah, and it may be, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Verena. It's a great point. It's a really great point that you've made. A lot of employers are talking about, right, we, we've got to renegotiate the psychological contract. And there's no reason why just the employers should do. It may be from an individual perspective, your listeners need to sit down and go, right, because hybrid working started where it was a new thing. I mean, it's not a new thing for all industries, but it started really rapidly. It happened almost within a month that people started working from home during COVID. There wasn't a great deal of negotiation. There wasn't a great, what does this mean? And it was amazing. People really delivered during COVID. It's absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal time. By and large, somebody's always got an example of somebody who didn't, but by and large, it delivered very, very well. I think now we're still living with COVID. COVID isn't over. But now's a good time to sit down with your boss or your line manager or your team, your colleagues as well, and just say, let's talk about everybody's expectations of everybody else. Unfortunately, we're coming towards the end of our time together. And I just wanted to close on a really practical challenge that many of our listeners have, which is around that flexible working request, which quite often gets rejected because there is this sense of uneasiness and, and bad gut feeling, which I think the root of it is, is trust, where the line manager just isn't sure if this is going to work and if the person is going to slack off. Do you have one or two things that someone who is right now putting together a flexible working request should be doing in order to get their managers to trust that this is all going to be okay? So like most things, most change projects that you would put in place, I would suggest that if you are wanting or putting in an application for flexible working, that you do it and you offer a pilot period, okay? That the employee offers the pilot period and they say that this is what they will deliver and this is how they will show their ability, their benevolence towards other people in the workplace their integrity and how the boss can measure this on a predictable basis and that they will allow that to be reviewed after three months or six months. Employers at the moment are not sure, Verena, where all this is going to land. We are in a very, very uncertain situation. And I think they are much more likely to be positive to a response that says, look, I'm just asking to try this out. This is what I promised to deliver. This is what I promised to deliver in task terms. This is what I promised to deliver to the community over that time. 
this is how you can review me and when you can review me. And let's see this as a positive experiment. There's just a lot of uncertainty and people at the moment are finding it quite difficult to know what is going to happen to the economy, to the state of business, etc., etc., over the next few years. One very senior leader said to me in these interviews during COVID, he said, we will be judged much more over what we do over the next three years than what we've done over the last two. COVID is not over. We have war. We have cost of living increase. Employers are in a feeling very uncertain. So recognize that and put forward a request that is a pilot for six, nine months, three, six, nine months. I mean, people will gauge that for themselves. And then willingly put yourself up for review at the end of that and see where the employer is. By that stage, they might be, you know, flexible working might be the absolute norm or it might not. And the other thing is just think about the sector. Some sectors are more up for this than others. And the other thing is, if you really, really, really don't want to give into a community, you just want to deliver on a task and you want to deliver on a task well, Brina, think about freelancing. Because in effect, if you don't want to do that benevolence bit back into the workplace, back into the institution, then you're starting to be, in effect, freelance in your mindset. And if that's the case, freelance, and you'll find you are entirely in charge of your working arrangements. That's why people freelance a lot of the time when they have caring responsibilities, because they end up with greater autonomy. So ask yourself that question. If you cannot give back into that community, maybe this is a period in your career where you freelance. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Veronica. If people want to find out more about your work, about you or want to connect with you, where should they go? Well, if you go on the University of Bath website and you put in Veronica Bailey, you'll find me there. But the other thing is that, frankly, if you put me into Google, you either put Veronica Hope Haley University of Bath or you put Veronica Hope Haley Trust and Trustworthiness. There's just masses of stuff. And all the reports that I've talked about that I've published over since 2012 on trust and trustworthiness, thanks to the CIPD and NHS employers, they're all on the web. If you look into them, there is just masses of stuff there. Loads of case studies of different employers, different individuals talking about trustworthiness. There's a huge swathe of information. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> Who isn't on LinkedIn? Fantastic. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope we can continue it at some point. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really have enjoyed it myself, Marina. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 36, where I talk to a group of fellows about expectations of mothers and how to deal with those. You might also enjoy our free event in January about returning to work if you are on maternity leave or have returned um, a very short time ago. If this podcast has been helpful to you and you'd like a practical community to support you, then consider joining the fellowship program. You can find details about this and access any of our free events on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. 
On the fellowship, you get access to amazing role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers, mentors, support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no. You'll get support to develop your vision and make a plan for career and family life in small group sessions. And you will access research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme. And they're all involved in some shape or form in driving wider change for working parents, which really excites me. Oh, and as I mentioned in the middle, if you think the world of podcasting should be a bit more gender equal and less of an old boys club, and you want to support me and this podcast, then I would be super appreciative of you taking a moment to share it, let's say, for example, via WhatsApp or Signal. And also it really helps if you write a five-star review. It just the algorithm makes it more popular and it gets seen more and so on so yeah it would be super helpful thank you so much and see you next week